Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. thought I'd begin this morning um, with a little bit of a confession. Don't worry, it's not um, a big deal. Um, but it is something that I thought I'd get off my chest and tell you about, uh, which is, I am a Swifty. Like, huge Swifty. I know everyone has their favorite era of being a Swifty. I understand that's a thing, and I would have to say that my favorite era of Swift would be the Bickerstaff era. Uh, this is a lesser-known uh, thing from Swift's life, uh, but back in 08, an Irish writer named John Partridge uh, wrote a series of essays uh, describing how bad Swift was and then made comparisons uh, to the Irish church and how bad Partridge thought it was. It was all, he blamed Swift for everything. It was kind of strange, um, but what Swift did in this case was um, even stranger. Uh, Swift wrote a series of articles in a local newspaper under a pen name. That pen name um, was Isaac Bickerstaff. Uh, and they struck back at Partridge, mocking his premise, uh, sort of making fun of what, what Partridge had said. And even in one of these articles wrote a eulogy for Partridge so that everybody thought Partridge was dead. In fact, the local coroner in Ireland came to the, to the house looking for the body, like, hey, Partridge is dead. We need to, you can't just leave the body in the house. It was a whole thing. It was crazy, but that's what life is like in 18th century Ireland. Oh, I seem to have caused a little bit of confusion here. When I say I'm a Swifty, I mean that I'm a fan of late 1600s, early 1700s pastor and author Jonathan Swift. That's what it means to be a Swifty, right? That's what, when we say that, that's what everybody's, ta- I'm going to go ahead and assume that that's what it's talking about. <laughs> because everybody should be crazy about Jonathan Swift. He's amazing. Um, Jonathan Swift was a Presbyterian minister in Ireland, uh, but he's also probably more famous uh, for being the father of modern satire. Uh, you may be familiar, maybe in high school, you had to read A Modest Proposal, um, a book where he decides that sarcastically, that the way to fix Ireland's potato famine problems is to have rich people eat the children of poor people. And it is widely seen as the first instance of modern English satire. Uh, he is also known, because of that essay, as the father of gallows humor. Gallows humor is kind of dark humor that involves death or sort of trivializing something that's sacred. Uh, you can see that when he wrote a eulogy for one of his critics that I mentioned when you were still thinking I was talking about that other Swift. I bring all of this up. Because this morning, as we turn to Amos, Amos is going to use some really dark humor elements, some things that Swift would be very, very comfortable and happy about. And he's going to do this because the people of Israel just aren't listening to him. He has come to them at several points and said, hey, judgment's coming. And they kind of have been shrugging him off and not paying attention to him. So what he's going to do in the main part of chapter four is recreate a worship service, but in a dark and twisted way. He's trying to wake these people up because they've become so self-centered, so self-absorbed, so self-involved 
that they can't even hear what he's saying. Their eyes, their ears are only attuned to themselves. And so, like Jonathan Swift would suggest, he resorts to sarcasm and satire. And this passage is significant for us today because we live and breathe in a world that trains us to be self-interested and self-centered. In fact, you don't even have to think about it. it becomes, it's just second nature to us. We have all heard probably this week the phrase, you do you. The problem with that is the Bible just simply does not teach you do you. The Bible wants us to be concerned with the welfare of others, not just ourselves. Following Christ means that we should be concerned with the well-being of our neighbors and not just concerned with what's going on in our lives. But we have all, whether Christian or not, been discipled by the me first and the gimme gimmies, by the, the desire to have more and more, the desire to look out for our own interest. And Amos wants to shake us all out of our self-involved stupor. So if you're able, um, I'd ask you to stand as I read Amos chapter four to us this morning. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you should be cast out into the land of Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you. When there was yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet... You did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet... You did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and that treads on the highest, uh, the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts is his name. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. 
I, I heard an audible gasp as I read the first line uh, where Amos comes in hot calling these people the cows of Bashan. Um, and that's one of the several phrases as we walk through this passage together um, that we're going to come to. But Amos is con- continuing the theme that he began in chapter 3, where he is talking to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel about the ways that they have oppressed the poor, the ways that they have built their wealth by exploiting others. And now he turns his attention especially to the women. And like we all heard, he calls them the cows of Bashan. Now, I have a piece of advice for all the men in the uh, church. Don't do that. But I do want to point out um, that what Amos says, and when Amos says it, it's a little bit different than the way that you and I um, may have heard that term used by others, um, because it's not exactly uh, an insult, not in the way that we would think, uh, not in the way that if you use this, you would get slapped and deserve it. Um, this is something different because the cows of Bashan were the finest cattle in all of Israel. They had the, the best grazing land. And so when Amos calls these women the cows of Bashan, he's, he's giving them a backhanded compliment, really. Uh, he'll get to the part where it's a critique, uh, but it's not the sort of thing that when we read that, we kind of have the initial shock and awe. It's not that because it would be like in our day and age uh, comparing someone to Wagyu steak. We all sort of go, oh, that's good. Oh, that's the finest of, that's the best of beef. Oh, that, that's what he is calling them, the finest of steak, the best of the best. And that's actually where the backhanded compliment comes in. Because how they have become the best of the best, how they have become the finest of meats in all of Israel is by building their wealth and their fortunes on the backs of others. They have an easy life while others toil away to make all of their money. That's why Amos says, they oppress the poor and crush the needy. They're relaxed and force others to do work on their behalf. And it culminates with a picture of them lounging around asking for a refill on their rosé. The picture that Amos paints for us, what he's trying to show us in these first three verses are people that are just so wildly self-involved so wildly focused on their needs, what they want, their self-importance, that they can't see anything else. And as I've already mentioned, this is, in common, this is common for us today. Our phones have discipled us and trained us to be subtle little narcissists. How many likes did that last photo get? How many laughs did my joke get? Who, who's watching my stories? How am, I gonna, how am I gonna get connections off of LinkedIn for my next job? Fill in the blank with whatever vice that our phone delivers to us. It has trained us to simply think about ourselves. And that's exactly what Amos is critiquing. That's exactly what Amos is trying to shake them out of. We are thoroughly self-absorbed people. And this cuts across the boundaries. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is the natural state of being in our cultural moment for us right now. And that's the same thing that was true of the people of Samaria. Bring me another rosé. But Amos gives them a word from the Lord. He says that this is not going to go on forever, and he is going to shake them out of this. And he, he goes after them in a, in a very specific way. He swears by his own holiness that they will lose everything, especially their self-determination. They're able to determine everything in their life and ask somebody to just bring them drinks. But what is the picture of the judgment that's coming on them? Their city walls will be breached and they will be led out with hooks through their noses. 
If you want a picture of somebody not being able to do what they want to do, that's exactly what Amos pictures for us. They go from being absolutely free to do whatever they want to being absolutely controlled by the people that come in. Their freedom and self-determination are going to all fade away in the ashes of judgment. Selfishness always leads to death and slavery. That was true for the Samaritans, and it's true for us. And so he begins with that picture, opening up with that, but then he gets into this sort of dark and twisted worship service. Um, in, in many ways, the people of the Old Testament worshiped in a sort of certain order. Their, their covenant renewal services had a flow and a rhythm to, and it's actually the same flow and rhythm that we use here at City Church is based on that, that Old Testament idea. And so Amos starts things out exactly the way that a worship service would have began in ancient Israel and exactly the way that our worship service began this morning with a call to worship, a call to come and worship. And he invites them to do this with a twist. Come, worship at Bethel and Gilgal. Now, immediately, they would have been tipped off to something's going on here because the worship of God at Bethel and Gilgal was absolutely corrupted worship. When, when Israel split into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, um, they decided that they weren't going to go to the temple anymore, all the northerners, because that was in the south. And so they said, oh, we'll set up our own temple. Okay, well, we don't have any of the stuff that's in the other temple. So what are we going to do? And somebody came up with this idea, and I'm, you cannot make this up. It's in Kings. They decided, here's what we'll do. We'll just build a giant golden calf because historically that has worked out for us really well. And we'll put that up there on top of the hill of Bethel and we'll just go ahead and worship God through that. And that is exactly what they did. Um, there was, there's a reason why there was never any good kings in northern Israel. And part of it was the fact that their worship was so corrupted uh, by them worshiping this God that was a golden cow. So Amos invites them, on, speaking on behalf of God, invites, yeah, yeah, why don't, let's just go to Bethel to worship. It'll be fine. Everything will be fine. But he says when they get there, all they're going to do is transgress. All they're going to do is sin. And they're going to multiply their sins by going to Gilgal and Bethel. And then he says, oh, sacrifices that are only required once or twice, three times for the festivals a year? No, no, no. Every day. We'll just go ahead and do, we'll do worship and sacrifices every day and it'll be great. Those tithes, the ritual giving that you have to do a few times a year, let's just make that twice a week. He is dripping with sarcasm as he sort of lays out, oh, you're, you're, you're fine. Everything is fine. You're doing great. I mean, wow, you're giving extra to the church. Everything is going fine, but it is so twisted. He says, oh, bring offerings of leavened bread. We weren't supposed to do that. In fact, you were supposed to specifically use unleavened bread. He says, oh, when you make a free will offering, which was something that was supposed to be private between you and God, no, no, no. Take out an ad in the newspaper. Let everybody know. Put, put a number above your head and carry around one of the big publisher's clearinghouse. That's a thing that only half of you know what it is. Publisher's clearinghouse check. Man, I'm feeling my age. Um, <laughs> just parade it around. He is giving them this dark and twisted, perverted look at what their worship is. But this is what they love to do. They love the pomp and circumstance of religion, but their hearts couldn't be any farther from God than they are. And that's the same thing that can be true of us. 
attending church, giving to the church, helping others, serving at church, serving outside the church. All of these can be very good things, but every single one of them can be corrupted and turned into a vice. When we judge others or hold ourselves up and look at ourselves self-righteously because of our performance in any of these religious duties, we have absolutely lost the thread and we're guilty just like the Samaritans. When we treat Christianity like a to-do list to be checked off, we are just as guilty as they are. Beloved, this, this isn't a game. There aren't any achievements to unlock in Christianity. It's not a race where we have to check off the boxes. This is about the love and forgiveness and transformation that comes from worshiping Jesus, but they just simply didn't get it. And so he continues his, his mock worship service. And the place where we have a sermon uh, in our church service, in ancient Israel, they would have a retelling, a recounting of, of the law, of a part of God's story from Exodus or Deuteronomy. And he, the, somebody would get up and, and talk about God's provision in the wilderness, or somebody might remind them of how God gave them the land through a series of miracles like the one at Jericho. But instead of telling those stories, Amos tells another set of stories. He gives five examples of how God had been at work in the lives of the people that he was speaking to that they absolutely missed. You might have heard me repeat the phrase or saw it repeated as we read through, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He has been trying, trying to get their attention and they just aren't getting it. They're just not following. And so he starts by talking about famine. Cleanness of teeth um, is another one of those phrases like the cows of Bashan, which is pretty far culturally removed from us. Um, it doesn't mean what we think it means at first because in our day and age, cleanness of teeth is a good thing. It keeps you from having to be tortured. I mean, visit a dentist. It keeps you from having to see those people who chose a profession where they're going to put others in pain. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I love Will. It's sort of kidding. Not about the love part, but you know. No, but in the ancient world, cleanness of teeth meant that you didn't have anything to eat that would make your teeth dirty. It meant that you were going hungry. And that's why he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth and a lack of bread. They didn't have any food. And yet, they didn't once ask, is God's hand in this? And he says, not only that, I made the rain really weird. I took away the rain that comes three months before harvest that was a fixture in the lives of the people of Israel, the later rains. I took that away. And not only that, I made it rain on one house and not the other, which here in Florida, we look at that and go, that's, that's normal. You know, that happens all the time. But in Israel, that was weird. And so he says, look, I made it rain. Your neighbor's house got rain and you didn't. And you never once stopped and asked why. Not only did I send famine, but I sent all sorts of blight on all of your plants. They were diseased. All sorts of produce were affected. And yet never once did the people of Israel ask why. And, and then, and this is, this is amazing reversal. Amos draws a ton from the book of Exodus. We saw that last week and we see it again here. God says, I literally sent the same plagues that I sent on Egypt when I brought you out of the land. I sent those same plagues on you and you never stopped and wondered 
could I be responsible for this situation? They never ask why. They never, never considered it. And it all culminated by God saying that he had destroyed some of their cities in the same way that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet nothing, none of this, ecological disasters, political disasters, war and famine, none of it seems to, be get, seems to get through to them. And I want to stop for a minute here um, and unpack a little bit of what Amos is saying because we could quickly get to some bad views about who God is and what God is doing. God used a series of natural and political disasters to try and get the attention of the people of Israel. God was trying to tell them something in their hardships and struggles, but they weren't listening. And when we think about this, we have to thread a needle carefully. We have to think carefully about this and avoid a couple of pitfalls when we think about the relationship between God and tragedy. First off, when we read the Bible, we see that God is in sovereign control of all things that happen in the world. Not a single electron rotates around an atom without his command. We don't believe that he is absent or out of control of anything in our lives. By the same token, the Bible teaches us that he is not the author of sin. There have been people who have tried for years and years uh, to reconcile those two ideas. Many, many people, men and women smarter than me, um, and if you're really interested in threading that needle further, I can give you some recommendations. But a couple things to point out. He never makes us do evil. And God is never purposeless in the things that he brings into our life. But what, when it comes down to it, what's really, go, what's really the question on our hearts is, what do we do with the terrible results of the broken world in our lives, with cancer and sickness? What do we do with tragedies? What do we do with poverty? If these are in his power to control, what do we do when those things come into our lives? On the one hand, these things aren't necessarily the result of our sin. Uh, one of the most beautiful pictures of this is Jesus in John chapter 9. He is walking through Jerusalem, and as he's walking through Jerusalem, his disciples see a man who was born blind. And they say to Jesus, ah, whose sin made this man to be born blind? His or his parents? And the, and the disciples, you can almost like hear them puffing their chest out like, I, I'm asking the good question. I, you know, I'm going to get kudos for this. And Jesus goes, no, wrong question. Incorrect. It was not this man's sin. It was not this man's parent's sin. This was for the glory of God. Our sin does not always result in some sort of holy spiting. No, the sin was not caused, or this man's problem was not caused by his sin. But we have to balance that with what we read here in Amos. God is using tragedies. God is using difficulties, famine, war, and blight to get the people to look at their sin. All of these things were God's attempt to get Israel's attention. Yahweh was trying to compel them, trying to get them to open their eyes to evaluate their life. And he was using hardships to do that. In all of their afflictions, they never once questioned, why is this happening? And the same thing can be true for us. Sometimes God bring tra brings tragic circumstances into our life, not because of our sin. 
Sometimes the world is broken and terrible because the world is broken and terrible. But what would happen if we ask ourselves the question, is God trying to get our attention? The answer might not be yes. The answer isn't always yes. But are we so self-involved that we can't be bothered to ask the question? The people of Israel were. They were not willing to humbly open up their lives to God and let him look around. They just bopped along through disaster saying, this is fine. And so Amos mocks them. Amos mocks them in this worship service. And then gets to the culmination. Amos takes an invitation and turns it into a threat. Prepare to meet your God. That may sound like an invitation. In fact, it is used as th- those, that exact language when the people of Israel were coming up to Mount Sinai and they were getting ready to hear from God himself. What did Moses say to them? Prepare to meet your God. This is going to be amazing. Amos takes that and turns it on his head. He says, prepare to meet your God in a way that says, prepare for battle. He's coming. And this is not a battle you're going to win. This battle summons is to a battle you are going to lose because he lists out how God is absolutely sovereign over natural and human effects all around. Now, look, if we read this passage, as we've listened to it all together, it can be pretty bleak, pretty doom and gloom. But I want to point out a couple things for us this morning. First, this is an honest portrayal of a God of judgment. And it's the kind of honesty that we often need in our lives. It's far too easy to make God just about puppies and rainbows. Because the God of puppies and rainbows sounds great. But if you start to think about just a God who's all love and everything is fine and everything is good, that's actually a God who isn't just. That's actually a God who lets pain and tragedy be wasted and ineffective. And so a God who will judge sin, who will deal with sin through judgment is good news to those who have been hurt. But there's also hope in this passage. It's not just relief for those who have been burdened by the oppression and abuse of others. This passage is also hopeful because if you work your way backwards through it, you actually see the life of Jesus. Jesus who prepared to meet with God in the Garden of Gethsemane and then received all of the judgment for all of the sins in our lives. We see in this passage that Jesus was the one who endured all of the hardships sent his way without failing to see God in them. Jesus lost loved ones. Jesus had terrible tragedies in his life because that's part of what being a human is. And yet Jesus endured them all. And now, because of what Jesus has done through his life, he invites us to worship. He invites us out of our self-involvement, out of keeping our eyes on ourself. He invites us to love and work along with him, not to ignore or marginalize others. He invites us to worship. And in return, he turns that invitation around. He turns that invitation to prepare to meet your God, to come, I have a table and a home prepared for you. I've already set it aside. I've already done it. A table of everlasting blessing and life eternal because of the life and death of Jesus, preparing to meet the God of the universe becomes for us 
an invitation that we get to live out each week when we come to the communion table. So beloved, let's, let's pay attention. Let's look around to what is happening outside our lives and inside our lives and ask the question, what is God up to? Let's pray.